You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. I am your host, your pal in the Kitty Copy in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. This show is available anywhere you like to find your favorite podcasts, like Google Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya, Apple Podcasts, whatever you like. And if you don't like any of those services, or maybe you just don't want to swipe through clunky podcast apps, you can always just ask your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. It works with Amazon Alexa, Siri, Google Home. Whatever. And today is going to be a very offensive line heavy day. I want to start the postmortems of the Vikings season, and we'll kind of go position group by position group here. We'll talk about, you know, the skill players and the defensive backs and all that stuff. We're going to start with the offensive line because I think that's a little bit more of a hot button topic, especially the way the season ended. And so I'm going to go through the offensive line play throughout the season and try to make sense of where we kind of stand and take stock. But first, a couple of quick news hits. Uh, One of the Vikings potential candidates, although there wasn't any buzz, this is something that made sense, but he's off the market now. It was Jay Gruden. I had brought him up in the podcast about offensive coordinator candidates. He would have been the outside hire that made the most sense, but he's now going off to Jacksonville to coach Gardner Minshew. It's a pretty good fit over there. He, of course, had a connection with Mike Zimmer, and he ran the same scheme as the Kubiaks, so it would have made a lot of sense, uh, but it still seems like the Vikings are looking at promoting from within, and this only strengthens that prediction. The Vikings are also continuing to fill out their 90-man roster for training camp with a couple of low-level future contract signings. One is Stacy Keeley, defensive end. He was an undrafted free agent last year, tried to make the team, didn't make it, and he's going to try again in 2020. The other is Braylon Addison, a Hamilton Tiger Cats alum of the CFL. He's had a couple of cracks at the NFL as well, and he's going to take another one in 2020 with the Vikings. The Vikings have also expanded their Pro Bowl roster for the 2020 season. Of course, all these people get in as alternates, which does make it for a little bit less of a a contract incentive. However, there will be more Vikings competing in the skills competition this weekend. And of course, the actual game. Among them, Kirk Cousins, Eric Kendricks, Everson Griffin, and CJ Hamm, all of whom probably had a case to make the Pro Bowl in the first place, and also Xavier Rhodes, which is kind of funny. It goes to show that it's a lot of name recognition. I spoke about this last time we talked about the Pro Bowl and why there were certain snubs like Eric Hendricks, which has now been remedied, and Anthony Harris, who ha- which has not. But largely, it's a popularity contest, both with the fan voting, you know, uh, uh, well-known names are going to make the Pro Bowl more than not well-known names, really regardless of quality. And it makes it a pretty poor referendum on quality, which makes it disappointing that it's part of a lot of players' contracts. We'll talk more, though, about Xavier Rhodes when we post-mortem all of the defensive backs. For now, I want to move on to a daily tradition that I want to start. So basically, we're going to have every day that isn't a mock draft Monday, we're going to have a Viking a day. This will be a great way to kill a little bit of time in the offseason while we wait for some of the more interesting news to roll in. We'll highlight a historic Viking, a past, maybe present, somebody from the old 70s and 60s team, somebody from the 90s team, somebody from a little bit more recently, maybe, and we'll just remember who they were and catch up with who they are now. And so today's Viking of the day is former right tackle for like 12 years, Tim Irwin. Irwin was a third-round draft pick for the Vikings in 1981, and he remained the starting offensive tackle after getting the job a couple years later all the way through 1993. In his time in Minnesota, Irwin was a stalwart for the Vikings and became known for his consistent reliability. He went an entire decade, and the only games he missed 
was during the strike-shortened season of 1987. Now, while Tim Irwin's impressive track record with the Vikings would be impressive enough on its own, perhaps it's the impacts that he has had after retiring in 1994 that are most noteworthy. And some of that impact still touches the Vikings today. Sometime near 2002, Irwin founded the Knoxville Catholic Youth Football League. After finishing his law degree and opening his own law practice, he founded this league as a way to stay connected to the sport. One of his kids that came through that league went by the name of Harrison Smith, and he saw a lot of potential in Harrison Smith and referred him to the trainer that he himself had used, a guy by the name of Charles Patrone. To this day, Patron's Wood Gym in Knoxville, Tennessee is still Harrison Smith's preferred off-season destination, and were it not for this connection, Harrison Smith may not have become the Viking he is today. His law practice covered a wide range of categories like personal injury and sports law to juvenile defense, and it was that last one that inspired his next move up. In 2005, he was appointed the judge for the juvenile court of Knox County, dealing mostly with custody cases and other juvenile matters. But his impacts don't even stop there. Since 1990, he has been running something called the Tim Irwin and Food City Bass Tournament in Lenore City, Tennessee. Over all of the years that he's been running this tournament, he has raised over a million dollars for the boys and girls clubs of the Tennessee Valley. And almost 20 years after its founding in 2009, he was inducted into the Boys and Girls Club Hall of Fame. So suffice it to say that Tim Irwin is one of the good ones. He was a stalwart on the Minnesota Vikings throughout basically the entire 80s and came out of football with a life and career of making things better for kids. It's something that is extremely admirable and worth highlighting. The only other Viking that has gone on to become a, a judge in their home state is, of course, famously Alan Page. And that's a category you want to be in if it includes Alan Page. Moving on to the current Vikings offensive line. You like how I themed that? And where I want to start is just by defining some things about offensive line play that I think are important. For example, the Vikings did a lot of stuff to help their offensive line. So the expectation should be a little bit higher. If the Vikings are doing poorly on these plays that are designed to help them, then they should probably be compared a little bit lower, you know, against other offensive linemen who are getting less help from their scheme. And that is going to make something that is largely bad look a little bit worse. But it also encourages us to look out when it's time to look at free agency and say, hey, you know, that guy that plays for the Saints or played for somewhere like Houston where they hold the ball forever. And if that person looked good, then they're going to look even better in this scheme where the Vikings are going to help them out a whole bunch more. And similarly, hey, you know, they struggled a little bit over there. Maybe they get a little bit better here. And by the way, if somebody from the Vikings leaves and goes elsewhere, they might struggle a little bit more in a team that doesn't help them out as much. So part of that is like with rollouts and screens and stuff. I'm going to link a really good article from uh, Eric Eager that explores all of these things and talks about, you know, the the value of, of a pass rushing win or a pass blocking win, uh, the value of, of screens and rollouts and stuff in terms of how we can like adjust offensive line evaluations. And by the way, it also kind of uh, suggests a couple of draft picks too. But the takeaway that's going to be most helpful for this podcast is that between about two and three seconds after the snap is when the most differentiating plays happen. Essentially for an offensive line, if you get the ball out of your hand within a second, say on a quick slant or a now route or something like that, the offensive line's performance is going to be really, really easy. It's easy to block for a second. Conversely, it's incredibly hard without a rollout or something to block for more than four seconds. 
or even more than three. So anytime your quarterback is holding the ball more than three or four seconds, they're going to invite pressure a lot more often. And by the way, the data kind of backs this up that at a certain point, pressure is the quarterback's fault, no matter how bad your offensive line is. So you just kind of have to isolate that moment between like two and three seconds. That's why ESPN's pass block win rate, uh, draws the line at two and a half seconds. If you blocked for two and a half seconds, then you blocked well enough for them to call it a win. And in that stat, the Vikings rank 23rd at 57% of the time they quote unquote won their reps. So 23rd in the league, not great. And I think that's the baseline for, okay, so now how do we improve upon that, right? Where do we isolate? And now we can kind of go player by player and really talk about the seasons that these guys had. But first, I want to talk to you fellas about your relationships. I hope you're taking good care of them. And if you're interested in spicing things up or maybe just making yourself better for the sake of your partner, I encourage you to check out Blue Chew. Blue Chew is the very first chewable tablet of its kind. It has the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know exactly what you're getting into. Blue Chew is appropriate for adults of all ages, and it's made right here in the United States, and it just ships right to your door in a nice, discreet package. So that means you can skip a whole bunch of awkwardness, skip the trip to the pharmacy, skip the waiting, and that saves you a buck, too. So head on over to BlueChew.com right now and enter promo code LOCKEDON at checkout. They'll let you try it for free. That's BlueChew.com, promo code LOCKEDON. I also want to talk to you about fitness. Since this is a sports podcast, this is something that a lot of people, of a lot of listeners probably think about. But physical fitness is just as important as mental fitness. And call is an app that can help you with your mental fitness. So Calm is an app they've teamed up with LeBron James, and it is the number one app for sleep and meditation. Now, LeBron James, and if we're being honest, the Vikings, and especially Kirk Cousins, they care about this a ton, they know that your brain is a muscle just like any other, and sleep is a huge part of a good training regimen for that muscle. It should be a part of your mental fitness routine, just like running and lifting should be a part of your physical fitness routine. With Calm, you have access to nature scenes LeBron loves, like rain or leaves and so much more like sleep stories and meditation. So if you're interested in training your mind and getting better sleep, for a limited time, our listeners can actually join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual membership at calm.com slash locked on. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash locked on. That's calm.com slash locked on. All right, let's start this offensive line review with the one I'm sure you guys are all thinking about the most and have the most questions about, and that's Garrett Bradbury, of course. He's the first-round draft pick, the center. He had such an up-and-down and crazy wild year that it, it takes a, a lot to parse, and I think he he provides a pretty good example of some principles in offensive line evaluation that I think are really important. Now, for this, I'm going to cite uh, PFF grades a lot, and I know that that can be kind of a sore spot for some people, so I'm going to try to do my best throughout to like explain the grading process and what parts of it I think are important and kind of how to parse a PFF grade with some of the PFF statistics and some of our own perceptions. And I think Garrett Bradbury is actually a great backdrop against which to do all that stuff. But real quick on their scale, uh, don't think about it like school. Somebody actually asked me that, like, hey, can we think about this as like a school thing? Um, I I wouldn't do that. I would say anything in the 70s is like good. That's like somebody playing at an acceptable starting quality level. Anything in the 80s is approaching elite. Anything in the 90s is like Aaron Donald, holy crap. Uh, Sam Monson, one of the heads at at PFF, he kind of sees anything below 70 as something you should try to replace next season or something you should try to improve on. If it's above 70, it's something you can totally stand pat, and if they can replicate that next season, then you're golden and good to go. So on the season, total offense, uh, PFF gave... Garrett Bradbury a grade of 57.6, which is pretty bad and probably aligns with what you thought of Garrett Bradbury. But I think going into it game by game, 
reveals something really weird, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, so I'm just going to try to kind of talk this out live. So if you split his pass blocking grades into games above his average pass blocking score and games below his average pass blocking score, by the way, his average pass blocking score was 41.6, and his run blocking score was higher than that and kind of dragged his total average up. So above that 41 and below that 41, you only have five games below that 41, and and so what that tells you is there were five really, really catastrophic games, and the rest of them were pretty good. And if you look at just those games and isolate just those weeks, you kind of get the same story. On those five games, he ranked dead last in like every category of of centers that played enough snaps to qualify. He was 40th out of 40 qualifying centers in pass block grade, but if you don't even like the grades, in pressures allowed, and in in pretty much any measure you want, in those five games, uh, I want to say that they were uh, the Packers game, the original Falcons game, uh, the Bears game, the other Packers game, and the Detroit game. Those were the games where Garrett Bradbury was absolutely god-awful, and if you take those games and isolate them, he's the worst center in the league, and I don't think you have to even work very hard to construct that argument, but if you look at the other 13 games that he played, he ranks in, like, the top 10 of stuff if you take away those disastrous games. Now, you shouldn't take away those disastrous games to, like, actually evaluate him, but it does paint this really weird picture, right? Where he has shown, on multiple occasions, and more often than not, 60 minutes of quality football. And and that's something that he was able to do, even by his harshest critics, which are PFF. They were the only ones who had him below... Uh, Eric McCoy and Elton Jenkins, both of whom had way better rookie years, uh, they were like the only ones that had that pre-draft, so I do kind of think they have a right to like have their voices heard here, and you get this picture of a guy with like flashes, but like ridiculously problematic inconsistency, and with offensive line in particular, this is one of these principles that I think Garrett Bradbury illustrates really well, that consistency is kind of the point with offensive line. And if you look at just like the value, and you could even look at like the EPA of a, of a sack, right? Of a six yard sack on first and 10, say that's, that's a pretty normal sounding sack. The EPA of that for an offensive lineman to make up the amount of value that they would cost the team by giving up that six yard sack, it takes like half a game to make up that much value of playing consistency. And so while it may seem kind of unfair to look at an offensive lineman and say, yeah, you had 29 good reps in a row, but then you had look at this one bad one, that is kind of how offensive line has to be evaluated. I think defensive back is kind of on on the same spectrum of they're, they're guys that are preventative positions. They're reactive positions. Someone's trying to do something and it's your job to prevent it. And yeah, focusing on how often you fail to do that, especially for offensive line where the deck is kind of stacked in their favor. They know when the snap count's going to be. They only have to block for, you know, two or three seconds. Judging them on how often they fail to do that rather than how often they succeed on doing that is probably a better way to differentiate between guys. And so for Garrett Bradbury, there are five games that are complete and utter, I mean, piss down your leg catastrophes. And if you do mash it all together, and I really don't think you should, I think you should think of Garrett Bradbury as somebody that had too many catastrophic games, but the rest of them were also good enough to, like, change how that feels. But if you do mash it all together, I think it's fair to call him a bottom 10 center. And that really sucks for a rookie, right? Now, there's a lot of examples. Frank Ragno comes to mind of people who, you know, have uh, centers especially who have struggled in their rookie year and then kind of figured it out as the rest of the rookie contract wore on. So there's definitely no reason to, to you know, abandon hope all ye who enter and throw Garrett Bradbury away and go, you know, start talking about centers in the draft again. But 
there is a, enough bad play, enough piss down your leg catastrophes to cause a little bit of concern. But here's where I overthink it and confuse myself because I think usually of a of a bad offensive lineman as somebody is who you say, okay, you know he's good for you know three or four bad plays a game or or five or six bad plays a game, and you know he's good for X bad plays a game is kind of how I think about uh, you know offensive lineman value and how I differentiate them you know evaluatively and 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 turn those evaluations into like tangible effects is okay he's good to give up you know x bad plays a game but that's really weird with Bradbury because there's I'm sure there's an average that's probably pretty bad but you can't really say that because he's good for either like one bad play a game or zero bad plays a game or he's good for an oh my god catastrophe 10 bad plays a game and it's really hard for me to parse that versus somebody like say Pat Elfline who's just good for too many bad plays a game and you have to replace him and that's really like straightforward to me Bradbury is is less straightforward and his ability in the run game should also be mentioned because film Twitter and and people on on uh, online who like to break down film but even people like Dan Orlovsky and Brian Baldinger and and Jeff Schwartz all of whom uh, used to play all look at him and, and see like oh wow look at this rookie center he's really having a great year and and praise him a lot more than like PFF does and I think part of that is because PFF doesn't give you credit for having a difficult blocking assignment or doesn't give you that much credit at least for having a difficult blocking assignment. If you fail, you fail, and you get downgraded on that play, and that's that. And there's plenty of value to that, but I think looking at a difficult blocking assignment and watching you execute that, PFF doesn't give you, like, a bigger grade, but people who are just breaking down film and coming up with an opinion are going, wow, that was a great play. Look at all the potential this rookie has. So I I see where those people are coming from, and I definitely see where the disconnect is between those two groups. Somebody who says, you know, no, Bradbury's a bottom 10 center, and then somebody like Brandon Thorne, who coaches and is, like, a, a really well regarded expert on offensive line who's a really big Bradbury fan and really likes the potential that the kid shows. I see this really like polarizing character and that's why I'm spending so much of this podcast on it because I, I, I'm fascinated by this rookie season. It is something that's really, really hard to figure out and I don't think it's sufficient to say bottom 10 center and move on or or he's just not good enough and move on and say, oh no, he's going to bust. There's plenty of chance of that and, and I am fairly concerned because he did have so many pissed down your leg catastrophes, but I, I also see the potential and I could definitely see a world where those 13 good games that he had, those games, you know, including like playoff games and big, you know, nighttime games and big moments, those games are the ones I, I could definitely see that happening more often than the, oh my God, PFF gave him a 0.0 passing grade and Grady Jarrett ate his lunch and it was a bloodbath. I, I could see that, you know, diminishing as he improves, as he becomes more consistent, you know, from his rookie year, but it is going to be a game of consistency. This can't be a thing where you say, okay, he had this one bad game, but if you throw that out, he was really good. You you can't do that. I, I think it's maybe informative to look at what happens when you throw those things out, but you can't make that the take. And, and the take has to be, he wasn't good enough. He has to get better. His version of getting better is going to be either having fewer of those catastrophic games or when he pisses down his leg, have it hurt a little less bad. That's what getting better has to look like for Garrett Bradbury. Now, you're not going to move on from a first round pick no matter how bad he is. But if we are going to hope for him in 2020, that's what it's going to look like. Now, I'm going to rattle off the rest of the offensive linemen here in just a second. But first, I wanted to just let you guys know that you can advertise right here on this podcast. You listen to all the ad reads that I do and all that stuff. You listen to uh, the people that get to 
have their messages heard here on this show, especially if you're local to Minnesota and you want to appeal to local fans, Vikings fans, the kind of people that listen to this podcast. And you know that local fans do love to support local businesses, especially instead of big national chains, right? So text the word advertising to 33777. That's 33777. Or visit lockedonpodcast.com slash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your, your team achieve Locked On Advertising success. Once again, text the word advertising to 33777 or visit lockedonpodcasts.com slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. Okay, so for the rest of the offensive line, it's a lot easier than Bradbury, and I don't need to, like, parse it out with so much nuance. Uh, For example, Pat Elfline was horrible. I mean, he was not even close to a starting quality level. He might have not even been a backup quality level. And I advocated a little bit more patience throughout the season, but mostly that's because the alternate options weren't better. I mean, we were choosing between Brett Jones, who can't run block, and Dakota Dozier, who couldn't win the the job either. And Dakota Dozier actually did play worse than Pat Elfline throughout the season, uh, per pretty much every measure I can find. He was a, a worse guard than than Pat Elfline, so it's like, okay, well, we can't just bench him because we're mad and put a, an even worse guy out there. We just kind of have to deal with it, but now that it's the offseason, the options open up, right? We can talk about free agency and the draft and stuff, and, and I think that they should definitely try to acquire a starting quality guard, and here's the thing. If Pat Elfline starts in 2020, it's a failure of, of offseason policy, right? It is just not acceptable to put him in the anointed role. If you get somebody to compete with him and that person can't beat out Pat Elfline, either it's a rookie and maybe, you know, he advocates impatience. And that's the only time that I would be, you know, maybe like, okay, maybe this is all right for a little bit, but, you know, we have this kind of rookie waiting in the rings. It'd be a, waiting in the wings. It'd be a a Rashad Hill, Brian O'Neill situation. And that's maybe acceptable. Or it's somebody you picked up as a free agent who sucks more than Pat Elfline. And that really, really sucks. But if you remember that line we drew with Bradbury for, like, what's a piss-down-your-leg catastrophe, Pat Elfline, Bradbury had five games under that threshold. Pat Elfline had 11 games under that threshold. So I want you to think about, for example, how Garrett Bradbury did against the San Francisco 49ers in that last game. That was actually his lowest game that was still above that average threshold. Or think about Bradbury versus either of the Packers games, or when he was getting destroyed by Grady Jarrett in Week 1. Think about that Garrett Bradbury performance, and then think about Pat Elfline doing that in 11 11 of 18 games, or I'm sorry, 11 of 17, because he did miss the week two contest in Lambeau. And with him, like I said, it's a lot more straightforward. He was just kind of good for two or three or four or even pressures a game. That's way too much for a left guard. He had his worst game at at the worst possible moment against San Francisco. He gave up five pressures in that game uh, and basically allowed DeForest Buckner to destroy his entire soul. And, And he really took over some games in a really bad way, and you can't have that from your left guard. Now, again, the Vikings do a lot of things to hide their left guard, and it's why they still had a top 10 offense in spite of all this, but that isn't to say that that means it's okay to have one as bad as Elfline, because getting someone better than Elfline is pretty cheap. You, I mean, of course you should go for, like, somebody maybe a little better, but you could get a replacement level guard and improve on Pat Elfline. That's really, really concerning, of course, and that's why I say if he ends up starting for you, then it's a failure in evaluation, and it's a failure in off-season process. It's just time to move on, and that's okay, Draft misses happen to everybody. This isn't a reason that heads need to roll here, but it's time to get a new left guard, and we roll on into 2020 with the new face. Elsewhere, things are actually pretty optimistic, even with the bad game Riley Reef had leaving, you know, a really bad taste in our mouths. Josh Klein, down the stretch in the last five games of the Vikings season, he played like a top five guard. He actually tied in pass blocking grade with Marshall Yanda. 
And he was fairly consistent as well, outside of one uh, potentially concussed contest against the Giants, where he had kind of a, a rougher game. And he did have some moments. He was very far from perfect, but very much uh, not in the range of being a problem you have to schematically address. And that's what we're really looking for with these offensive linemen. It's a problem you can schematically address, but one that you are going to be more explosive if you don't have to. And, and Josh Klein definitely doesn't check that box. So moving forward with him in 2020 is something that I don't think anybody's going to object to. And I honestly think with the tackles, so so Brian O'Neill had a pretty nice season, honestly, in terms of pressures allowed. He was very consistent throughout the year. He did give up uh, reps that you wouldn't call a win. And he's another one of those examples that pro football focus might not like be as high on him as some of the the film people are because Brian O'Neill has a pretty nasty habit of giving up his chest and giving up ground in the pocket and he can always anchor and and he does have a lot of strength and athleticism to anchor um he he had kind of a strength issue coming out of college he needed to put on a lot of weight and I think he's done a pretty good job with that but there are some reps that can look really ugly but not end up in a pressure and, and that's the kind of thing that feels very unsustainable. And actually, with the work Eric Eager has done, it is unsustainable. If you lose the rep and don't give up a pressure, but like the, the reps you lose is going to predict the pressures you give up more than like past historical data of the pressures that you've given up. If you lose reps, eventually they're going to turn into pressures. So with O'Neill, though, it, it does seem like he's able to kind of anchor a lot. And that's a skill that he has, which is, you know, he can kind of make up for a rep that seems like a loss and make sure that it's not like a, a, a play ruining problem. And for that, I think he does get a little bit of credit. And when it comes to, you know, looking at the offseason, I mean, Brian O'Neill is the last guy on that offensive line you're going to touch. Now, Riley Reef creates a, a more interesting dynamic here. He ranked like between 40 and 50 and 60, you know, kind of in the in the bottom range of starting quality tackles. Not a backup quality tackle, but not like a good starter. And with the cap hit that he commands, he's probably going to be a target for a lot of people for cuts or uh, restructures, potentially moving to guard. There's going to be something that happens over on that left side. Of course, you know, moving him to guard. If you get a new tackle, you can potentially, you know, uh, improve two different offensive line positions by only acquiring one person. That might be worth the cost of moving Riley Reef to tackle, and his skill set might be a little bit better at, uh, for that than somebody like, say, uh, Charlie Johnson was, which that's the name that came out out of my hat. Wow. Throwback. Uh, but, but he kind of did have a, an issue in terms of production. Uh, and, and he definitely had more of an issue, you know, setting his feet right and, and getting beat inside a lot. Of course, he did have to contend with a lot of the best edge rushers. Uh, although a lot of teams did send their better edge rushers at Brian O'Neill and most teams did tend to kind of split reps between left and right. They didn't really treat, you know, Riley Reef as the premier tackle and Brian O'Neill as the less good tackle or anything like that. They kind of treated them as equals and, and on that relatively even playing field, Brian O'Neill out, out produced Riley Reef by a pretty big order of magnitude. Now, when it comes to the off season and, 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 you know, you're thinking about how to, you know, recreate this offensive line and maybe you move O'Neal to left tackle and move Riley Reef inside and then get a right tackle. That seems like a lot of work when you could just get a left tackle and move Riley Reef inside if you're going to do that kind of thing. So I would hope that Brian O'Neill stays at right tackle. 
He did play left tackle at Pitt, but that was like three years ago. So it might be uh, difficult to, you know, bring it back to that transition. You know, once you've been, you don't want to be sending these people back and forth. You want them to be able to get comfortable and stay consistent with offensive line. Consistency is the name of the game. And in terms of depth, of course, uh, we already kind of mentioned Dakota Dozier. He was not very good as depth. Rashad Hill, on the other hand, outplayed most other backups. And I actually think he's a pretty good idea as a backup to, to kind of keep that swing tackle role and have Oli Udo push him in, in training camp. And Oli Udo might be able to take that job from him, but I do think that your two options for that are having a camp battle and they're already on the roster and you don't need to go get another swing tackle. I thought you needed a swing tackle last year. Oli Udo filled that need. And now it's time to just let, you know, let, let nature play out there. Let him compete and we'll see who wins. Drew Samia also played one game of, of regular season action. He held up okay. I don't think he was, he's quite ready to play. Uh, and we'll see how he comes in next training camp with an entire offseason to try and get better, but I don't think he's quite ready to compete with somebody like Josh Klein or, you know, move to the left side and compete with somebody like Pat Elfline. I don't think he fills that role for you yet. Uh, he did come in pretty raw, both he and Ole Udo. I think Udo's ahead of him, but I, I think that uh, in times, I really, really like Samia's futures and I, I like who he can be. He's just not ready to play let play yet. That's totally okay. And I also want to tip my hat while we're talking to the, uh, about the offensive line to, to Rick Dennison, who managed to get a lot more development out of Oli Udo than we really ever would have expected. And also getting a, a little bit of, a. Uh, better, you know, if you kind of plot like Garrett Bradbury's season over time, he did improve over time. And I think that, you know, improvement over time can to some degree be attributed to the coach as well as Brian O'Neill playing well and the offensive line as a whole working in better sync than they had uh, last year when, of course, they didn't have any offensive line coach. I mean, they had Clancy Barone and Andrew Janoco, but that's not really what they wanted, of course, because Tony Sperano passed away. So, uh, you know, Rick Dennison outcoached uh cobbled together nobody, but I do still want to tip his, I do think he did a good job coaching the offensive line and coordinating the run game, so I do want to tip my hat to him as well. But that's going to do it for this episode of Locked on Vikings. So thank you for listening to my offensive line, O-line post-mortem. I will see you all tomorrow for the last show of the week. Hopefully we can maybe get a little coordinator news or something to talk about. Otherwise, I've got a whole bunch of other post-mortem stuff, and we'll start talking about mock free agencies and stuff soon, too. A lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, or you can ask your smart device to play podcast Locked on Vikings. I will see you all tomorrow, and as always, Skull!